Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Brown, and welcome to the Millie Podcast. The more I talk with people, the more I'm hearing the same thing. We're all looking for more meaning and more substance. People want to get away from the scripted reality and get to the heart of each person's story. This podcast is for women who want to rip up the script and explore new ideas, places, and possibilities. Every two weeks, I'll be talking with an inspiring and inspired woman who is creating impact in her community. And more importantly, a woman who can teach us to be ourselves, go after our dreams, and write our own story. I can't wait to share this journey with you. It's time to see the world in a different way. Welcome to Season 2 of the Millie Podcast. I can't wait for you to meet the inspirational and fascinating women of 2022. First up, Pauline Schmidt. As Senior Media Manager, Pauline plays a pivotal role at Save the Children Germany and the Human Rights Film Festival Berlin. My whole family, after the Second World War, they made the decision to settle in East Germany. It was a system that more and more drifted into fear of neighbors, reporting neighbors for little things like bringing a nice bottle of wine from the West to the East, which was mm. already considered not socialist. A dedicated human rights activist and feminist, Pauline's not just smart, she's wise. When I was sitting in front of him, I didn't feel him so much like a father, but more like somebody that is more or less my age. Mm. My father was helping people to escape, organizing these little balloons that they used to fly over the borders. At some point, um, there were 17 people watching him. For him, it was marry her or jail. I learned so much about the history of Germany's East-West divide through her family's all-too-common story of heartbreak and resilience. The story gets even darker (laughs) because then my mother found out that she was pregnant with me. With you. Yeah. It happens that babies are being taken away. It was a thing happening quite often. Heartbreaking. It is is heartbreaking and it is something that happened to a lot of other people too. At an age when most of us are still trying to figure out what to do with our lives, Pauline co-founded Yugen Tretet, a network of young people who rescued refugees stranded in the Mediterranean. They purchased their own ship and saved more than 14,000 people in one year. When you hear little stories and little pieces, it makes you understand the human component of things, how people can participate in things that from the outside are very, I would say, evil, you know, and very, very antisocial to each other. Mm. Pauline is a force to be reckoned with. She challenges expectations and rules and has very little time for the status quo. But that energy and drive is tempered by kindness and compassion, instilled in her from a young age through her family's own complex past. What she taught me about vulnerability and it being a strength, not a weakness, mm-hmm. I think it's the most beautiful thing that somebody ever has teached me. You're going to love this conversation. It is the perfect example of connection and expanded perspective that happens when we get real and vulnerable. I am so grateful that Pauline shared her story with us. I'm just so excited to be in Berlin and to connect with you, you know, and our other podcast guests. We're so excited and 
It's just been a whirlwind being here. This is my first time in Berlin in general. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Overwhelming, right? It is. You know, it's taken me a few days to find my footing, but yeah, I'm happy. Where are you you located now? I was in Kreuzberg. Yeah. Kreuzberg, yeah. Kreuzberg. Now I'm in Mitte. Mitte. Yeah. 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 And it's quite a difference already, right? I mean, Mitte, some people say it's a little bit preppy. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and Kreuzberg is a little bit like when people imagine how Berlin would look like, I think they imagine Kreuzberg. Yes. You know, artsy. because uh, artsy, a lot of uh, graffiti, a lot of people just being on the street, hanging out with their friends. Exactly. And Mitte is more like if you meet your friends, you go to a restaurant or right. another la- nicer place so to say. And I think the charming thing about uh, Kreuzberg is it is opening up a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because when you live in Berlin and I'm here for almost around about 12 years, you start circling around the city because I think you have heard about the huge discussion of uh, the rent going up Mm -hmm. so high. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go up super quickly, um, no matter in what kind of housing uh, you are located. And I think uh, politics, they are reacting to this a little bit too slow, Mm -hmm. you know. And so the running gag of living in Berlin is that you move all the time. And at some point you have lived basically everywhere. I was two times in different flats in Neukölln. I was in three different flats in um, Friedrichshain. I was in Charlottenburg. I was in Wilmersdorf. Now I'm in Schöneberg. Mm -hmm. I mean... For me, my personal goal is to keep a flat for two years, basically. Oh, I yeah, actually yeah. didn't know the extent of that. Wow. It's it's quite alarming, I would mm-hmm. say, because I think um, looking at Europe in general, um, Berlin is an interesting city for a lot of people. And uh, comparing it to other capitals, it's still quite okay considering the prices. Um, if you compare Rome and Berlin, for example, I mean, in Rome as a as a grown-up, sometimes you still have to live in a Wohngemeinschaft, like mm-hmm. in a shared flat, right? Um, because you could never afford your own flat. And then very quickly, when you maybe get married or you meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend, mm-hmm. you move in together. It's almost impossible to afford a flat on your own. Wow. And the problem that we are facing in Berlin, if you look a little bit uh, in East Germany, the salaries are pretty low, but the prices are high for rents. So something is not working out here yeah. at the moment. And actually to talk a bit about your story, yeah. you came from East Germany. Your mom actually sought refuge yeah. in West Germany. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about what that was like and... um you know, a bit about your mom's story. Yeah, I think um, I'm still trying to find uh, a way of speaking about the topic. Um, It's not territory that we have yet found a language for. Mm -hmm. My whole family um, basically uh, comes from Eastern Europe. And after the Second World War, Uh, they made the decision to settle in uh, East Germany, which very quickly became the DDR, as we know. Mm -hmm. And um, 
They followed this idea in the beginning of it being a kind of anti-fascist state, a state that is that is uh, focusing on community, that is focusing on equal equal rights for men and women. It was very usual that uh, women were full-time employed there, that they were engineers, you know, that they had very high positions when in compared to West Germany back in the days, we still had this very traditional image of women staying at home in the 50s and being the little homemaker. Right. So quite, quite different. Um, and my mother was a teacher there back in the DDR, um, completely different system. She was ready with her studies when she was uh, 16, basically. Uh, then they had to do some additional stuff in a boarding school that was specified, welcome to the German accent, <laughs> um, for people who will become teachers. Um, and then very, very early, I would say, in comparison how it is done today, uh, when she was 19 or 20, she was already full-time employed as a teacher. Uh, she had her own class. She was um, teaching the kids... Uh, Every suspect, basically. It was also done like that. Uh, yeah, and for quite some time, she was okay there. Um, the the DDR was, in the beginning, running quite well, I would say. But the system in itself was radicalizing itself. Um, they were building up this, uh, this internal police um that we today call the Stasi, the Staatssicherheit. Um, it was a system that more and more drifted into fear of neighbors, watching neighbors, reporting neighbors for little things that they might on paper did wrong, like, I don't know, um, bringing, bringing a nice bottle of wine from, from, from the West to the East, which was mm -hmm. already considered... Um, not socialist, you know, yeah. enjoying these these little uh, pleasures. Um, and it started becoming more and more radical. Um, at some point, it was not allowed uh, to um, basically listen to Western music, uh, which is quite mm -hmm. interesting because my mother, she was young in... Yeah, in the in the 60s, in the 70s, you know, and she completely missed on... The hippie movement, for right. example, you know, she never experienced Jimi Hendrix music or, yeah, stuff that that young people back in the days were enjoying. Right. So something that we still are having in uh, in Germany is that we are basically having two completely different collective memories. Mm -hmm. You know, people from yeah. the east they have another kind of music that they listened to. There were specific movies produced for the DDR by the DDR or the Soviet Union back in the days. And um, I think this is still something that we are facing today, you know, this, mm -hmm. this collective memory and this collective also pop culture that is so different, but that also forms you as a person yeah. and, and brings you up with your own kind of identity. But back to my mother's story... Um, she met my father at some point and my father was, um, yeah, let's say 
not so happy with the system and um, he didn't want to stay in the DDR, first of all. And second of all, he was actively helping people to escape uh, from the DDR. Mm -hmm. um, he was organizing th something that um, maybe you read about uh, these these little balloons that they used to fly over the borders. And uh, that was one thing. Another thing is that he had contacts to Munich um, because some relatives of him were living there and they were in the um, American army, which already made him suspicious. I was mm -hmm. earlier talking about the system becoming very paranoid, you mm -hmm. know. And the second you had connections to... Um, Western structures, uh, you were starting to become monitored, especially when it is a military connection. Right. Something, uh, some things that he did, which was also being a DJ back in the time and playing okay. Western music, um, helping people to escape and so on. They became a target of the Stasi and they were starting to monitor them, starting to make these super everybody knows it, these Stasi files, you know, and starting to report, starting to uh, read the letters. In um, in some situations, my mother was pretty sure that there were people in the house, like things in the house were located at different um, spots than before. Wow. It was very weird. Or a door was not... Um, completely shut, when it was shut, when they left the homes. The strongest time of being monitored was shortly before I was born. Um, I'm born in 85. So it started becoming wow. pretty intense in 1980, I wow. would say. And then it went on uh, till I was born, getting stronger mm -hmm. and stronger. At the same time, because this story is not only about my mother, it's also about uh, my mother's parents who were also in the beginning extremely euphoric about mm. this system, especially uh, my grandmother who is uh, born or who was born um, in Poland. Her, uh, her parents were communists back in the day, so oh. it made... It made a fit for her to go to the DDR wow. in a way. Um, not to say that this is a, a good system to follow, but it's just it was her way of perceiving mm -hmm. the the establishment of the DDR mm -hmm. as something positive, as as uh, something that could really make people equal and give everybody the same chances to study, to to get a nice life, basically. Yeah. Because she grew up in a farm and the family was pretty poor. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was logical for her. The two of them uh, met in Dresden, where I was also born. Um, my uh, grandfather and her became married pretty quick. And um, originally, uh, they had two children, my mother and my uncle. And here it becomes pretty pretty tricky. My my family has the, uh, the inside joke of us having very bad luck with the DDR because for whatever reason we we touched all of the topics that were not good to touch back in the right. days. So there was a rule in the DDR that uh, only one kid per family can study. Wow. 
And my uh, mother was the older one with the better grades, so she was allowed to study to become a teacher. My uncle, on the other hand, was not so interested in studying, and also he would have not been allowed. Um, So he became um, very engaged in sports, and that was something that, as you might know, was also a thing in the DDR, that they were pushing very strong to be part of the Olympics, to have young people being connected to the system of the DDR through sports, right. you know, through community, through working out together, being in these sports camps and so on. And, and why do you think that was? Why specifically sports? Well, I think it was something that gave the DDR a lot of prestige. Mm-hmm a lot of outside visibility, you know, uh, being in the Olympics, um, it always creates a good image, I would say, and and press coverage. And um, if you're being honest, it was also a good tool for propaganda. You know, look at our young people. They are so happy. They are so well trained. They are they are following this idea of community and sticking together. I mean, sports in many ways and very often was used for propaganda. And to be a little bit harsh here, uh, the DDR didn't have many other things to to paint a positive picture. You know, they didn't have a lot of trade going on that they could use to, I don't know, say, look, we are producing this beautiful wine. You know, they they don't ha- they didn't have a lot of different, I think it is called um, national branding, you know, and I think this was their way of national branding and it was fitting in the way that they wanted to be perceived. Mm-hmm. So long story short, um, my uncle was in one of these programs. Yeah, so and basically he uh, was getting very public as um, as a spokesperson mm-hmm. also for, uh, right. for the DDR. And something that um, they did back then and that is also part of a ongoing research in this country because we still don't know the extent of how this happened is that they were giving these very young people um yeah stuff that I would call doping today they they sold it as uh vitamins energy enhancers and so on and you have to imagine that we are talking about the 70s 80s and about a very closed community, a very closed country already. So nobody was expecting something like doping. You know, today it is part of the Olympics that you get a doping test, that this is something that is being talked about. But I would say these were more naive times, if this makes sense to you. And so um, he started to uh, become a little bit sick. You know, because uh, he was a high performer. Um, He was very ambitious on being on the Olympic team for 1984. Um, But on the other hand, the products that they were giving to him, they made him perform very strongly, very shortly. And then he was collapsing, you know. Mm. And in between practices, he was starting to become more and more sick, basically. Mm. 
And that was uh, what I was trying to say about the other part of my family. Of course, my grandparents noticed that something was going on with their son. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very young also. Um, he, this was when he was 16, 17, 18. And, you know, he was a very strong person, very, very caring, very giving, very present with his family. But when he was home, he was basically starting to sleep, you know, and being so exhausted, more exhausted uh, exhausted than a young person should be, even if he's a high-performing athlete. Right. And that made my uh, grandfather very suspicious. As I said in the beginning, uh, my family was um, very connected to the system in the beginning. First of all, believing in it, and second of all, being quite successful in it. Right. My grandmother, who is coming from a very poor family, she was a head secretary in an industrial uh, company. And my grandfather was uh, part of the um, airplane program of the DDR. So he had some connections uh, to higher places. He was just an engineer. But he knew people. So he was starting to do some research on what is happening there with young people. And at some point he found out that it was not a very good thing that they were giving him. Uh, My uncle became uh, very sick. And at some point he died. And um, that was when he was 19 years old. It was an absolute tragic for my family, as you can imagine, a tragic for my mother, who was already being spied on, you know. So this very happy experience in the beginning starting to become unbelievably dark. Yeah. They, of course, because of the death of my uncle, um, as a family, were unbelievably angry and unbelievably Outraged, but we are already talking about a time where you were not able to to leave. Exactly. You know, you could not say this system is not what I want to support anymore. I was naive. I was still under the impression of the Second World War and never repeating this cruelty because that is a direct, there's a direct connection of these two things happening. So basically, they pissed off the wrong people, right? <laughs> you know, with the wrong questions yeah. at the very wrong time. And then my uh, grandparents, my father and my mother became unemployed. They they got kicked out from their former very well-established lives. Wow. Yeah, and, and as you can imagine, the, the story gets even darker <laughs> at some point um, because then my mother found out that she was pregnant. and With um, you. With me. With you. Yeah, which was first, <laughs> I mean, because it was shortly after my, my uncle died and um, for my family it was, and I'm quoting them here, it was like a glimpse of hope, you know. Yeah. The life goes on. My my grandfather always used to say to me, when your mother told us that you were pregnant, we felt like, okay, we are going to be four again. You know, there there is maybe some, some mending happening. And a baby, as we know, it always brings a lot of work, but it brings a lot of happiness. So they were happy. 
But on the other hand, it was already quite known that um, when you are in the opposition, it happens that babies are being taken away. What? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a it was a thing happening quite often oh. back in the days. That you know they they did situations like. You know, a mother from the opposition comes in pregnant uh, into a hospital and then they tell the mother that the baby died. Wow. And they take uh, they took the babies to uh, people who were very much inside the system to raise them as foster kids. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if wow. you... It, as I said, it's quite publicly known, but back in the days it was a very bad rumor yeah. because the mothers, they could never even... Um, visit the supposed to be stillborn child, right. they were just gone. And so this wow. was a very bad a very bad fear of my mother. And um the second they realized, the four of them, my mother, my grandparents on my mother's side, um my father, that I was on my way and in nine months they would have to deal with basically a situation of um, a baby being in all of this mess. They started becoming active and very afraid because on one hand you could have still lived your life there. Uh, my mother was uh, working in um, something that you would call today this place where you buy your little shampoo right. and your soap yes. and so on. Yeah. She was responsible for restoring the shelves, which for a teacher is, of yeah. course, a very sad job, but it would have worked out somehow. And they started trying to get help from relatives of my grandmother, her siblings, because when my grandmother was born um, back in the days in Poland, um, she she had siblings that were not going to uh, the newly formed DDR, mm -hmm. but that were going directly to uh, to West Germany. Mm -hmm. So they were starting to to reach out to them by um, by letters um, or by by giving little notes to to people that they were hoping to get over the border. Mm -hmm. At some point, and I still have these letters. I should have bought them here. Um, my grandfather was also very desperately uh, writing messages to the United Nations because in some uh, in some situations they were interfering um, and trying to get people from the opposition out. Um, retrospectively, uh, the historical joke is that these letters, they never went through. Um, it was absolutely not possible to get any document out there at this point. We are talking, yeah, 1984, basically. Um, and so they had to make a very, very hard decision, basically. Um, my mother decided to leave the country alone with me because the policy was that they never uh, let people out as a family. You know, it would have been never possible for both of my parents with a little child being in the opposition, getting a permit to, for example, visit a relative in uh, West Germany because they knew people wouldn't come back. Right. And um, 
So they did uh, they did the following thing. At some point, it was uh, possible for my grandfather to um, get, let's say, a coded letter uh, to um, the brother of my grandmother. Bernie is his name. And ask him for a fake uh, birthday invitation. And uh, he received the letter and he understood what was needed from his side. I'm very happy about that. And then um, him and his wife um, invited uh, me, still being in the belly of my mother, and um, my mother to a family reunion birthday And um, for whatever reason, we still don't understand why, because following the rules, it was not completely transparent. Uh, my mother got the permit to um, to go there and to visit them for the birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to go one step back, um, because before she did that, she gave uh, birth to me more or less parallel. They got the coded letter out uh, for the fake birthday invitation. So uh, she gave birth to me under a different name um, in a hospital nearby Dresden, basically. And then very quickly uh, after my birth, um, under a false name, um, she was taking a train completely alone with just A bag my size, basically, like just with, um, I still have the document that when she was registered, because in West Germany, you know, Germans love bureaucracy uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> um, they counted what she had in her bag wow. when she when she arrived in, in West Germany with me being a newborn. Uh, she had, I think, four diapers. Um, I think three little dresses to to change me, you know, because on paper she was going to be away for two days. Right. So that was what was exactly fitting the story, yep. so to say. Yeah, and then basically I think she had two two ready-made sandwiches and that was it, you know. Wow. And um yeah, then she arrived uh being I think she was 28 uh with a newborn um in Gießen where you had to become uh, registered, for the lack of a better word, for, as a refugee, right. basically. Yeah. Right. And you lived there for 13 years, I think. Is that right? We lived there for quite some time. Um, without your father? Without my father. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Because we, I mean, the DDR was still present, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, uh, we still had some time to, to undergo because it broke together in... Uh, 1989. So in, at the moment, we are talking 1985. Right. Um, yeah, so my mother arrived there with uh, no certification of her um, former employments, um, with a little document that said that she was allowed to stay for 48 hours. Um, then she had to go back. And uh, I think with a passport for her, but not for me, in this res- registration center in Gießen, which back in the days uh, was called the, um, the gate to the west. It was, it was a place where a lot of people were arriving. Um, 
uh, a lot of people from um, the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of people from, um, I'm not sure how to how to translate it, but um, Jewish people who were allowed to come into West uh, into West Germany. In, in German, we call it contingent Flüchtlinge, like contingent refugees. Okay. And so we were in this complex of all of these people from different backgrounds, somewhere from the East. And like my mother was sharing her room with a very nice family um, from, yeah, from Poland. Um, a very nice Jewish couple, I think, from Ukraine mm -hmm. and with me. Wow. Yeah, that was the status quo. And then we stood there, I think, for a year because... Uh, of the lack of documents. Right. Um, and then at some point we got uh, a little flat by the state that we were able to move in. And my mother was able to register for my grandparents, for her parents, um, to come over as a family reunion. Right. It was basically possible for her to do it for them but it was not possible legally for her to do it for my father because oh. they were not officially connected. She never filed in his name in oh. any birth certificate to not endanger him right. in any way. Yeah, and then when my grandparents arrived, because the rule was that um, people who are filed for family reunion and their life was already destroyed there, so right. they didn't care anymore to leave anything behind, um, they have to be reunited after, I think, latest uh, six months. And when my grandparents arrived, I think everything got a lot easier for my mother. Right. You know, my, my grandmother helped greatly with raising me. Um, my grandfather was a very highly educated man, uh, so he was valuable um, for the West and he got a good position pretty quickly. So um, things were getting a little bit lighter. After my grandfather found a good job, they could move in better-ish apartment together. But when I'm when I'm saying better-ish, I'm talking better-ish for somebody who just escaped yeah. a, a very bad country. Baby steps, in a way. <laughs> yeah, and there they lived uh, till I was around 12, something like this. Then they moved in a smaller skyscraper. Yeah, yeah and that basically um, speaks a little bit for their spirit because um, what I find interesting about them is that they were never giving up. You know, it's beautiful. Within my life span, the three of them beautifully made it quite okay. You know, um, my mother was super determined to become a teacher again. Her certificates were not approved in West Germany, so she studied again. Wow. Working very strongly on the side because all of the social systems that are now in place back in the days. They were not something like a kindergarten that is open from, I don't know, seven in the morning till four, you know, right. where you could bring your baby yeah, and you could and go almost 
full-time to work. Um, so my grandmother did one for the team, basically, <laughs> and uh, they decided together that my grandfather is going to be an engineer again. Um, my, uh, my mother is going to study to fulfill her wish of Beautiful. being a teacher again. And my grandmother basically raised me. Which, really beautiful. Yeah. And it. I mean, I'm I'm very proud of them. Yeah. I mean, this is a very traumatic experience that they were facing of a state that was suddenly attacking them, monitoring them, um, prosecuting them in a way, and then living in harsh conditions in the West for very long and also not being part of society anymore. Because their life in Dresden was in the middle of society and in the middle of middle class structures, you know, like being a teacher mm -hmm. and living in pretty bad neighborhoods. Yeah. I would say for my mother being on paper alone as a woman, as a woman with a baby was not a very nice experience, I would say. Yeah, yeah but in the end... What I want to say is this is a very um, turbulent story, but I think it's a story about resilience yeah. in a way. It's a story about resilience and it's a story that is very connected to the story of this country, now unified country. What they experienced, it's something that a lot of people in the DDR experienced. It's not a unique story. Yeah. What was it like being reunited with your father It was um, very emotionally challenging for me. And I will tell you why. It was... Um, my father faced a lot of pressure there. Political pressure, of course. Um, because we were already being spied on and it was absolutely clear, but not documented officially, that I was his child, right. that my mother was his girlfriend. They were dating for nine years. I mean, it was very obvious that there was a connection. And when you are a person that is connected to people who made, uh, I will say the German word and then try to translate it, that made an Ausreiseantrag, like a request to leave the DDR. Right. He got an ultimatum uh, by the Stasi. They knew what was going on and that he was connected to three people that left. And as I already have told you, he had connections to the US military. And the DDR was very interested in that right. for obvious reasons. Of course. And so um, they said to him that he has to marry another woman uh, that was a Stasi spy um, to make him take her to these uh, military um, um, relatives. So, you know, they were officially married um, and uh, they got approval every time they wanted to go to Munich to these, um, wow. these relatives of him. And, um, I mean, your mother must have been heartbroken. Yeah. My so mother tragic. took it very bad. Um, so he told her that it was not a real marriage and that it was uh, obviously something on paper. 
um, they met once in a neutral state and uh, he told her the whole story. Heartbreaking. It is it is heartbreaking. Story. Yeah, it is heartbreaking and it is and I have to say that too, something that happened to a lot of other people too. Yeah. I mean it's it's not unique and that it would makes it so outrageous. You know? Unspeakable. Yeah. Unspeakable. And not so long ago. You know, I mean, this is this is still lived history. Mm-hmm. We are still having um, agencies, for example, in Berlin and East Germany, who are trying to connect these uh, former babies that were taken away with their birth parents. Oh. I mean, this is still happening, and this is still we are still facing the consequences of this era and this time. Personally, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, so my mother was heartbroken and um, she couldn't see it uh, in a way of him being under pressure, him being there alone, basically, and him being very afraid because they said, you either marry this woman and let her do reports. He was never doing it himself, but of course she was doing reports to other assets of the Stasi. For him, it was marry her or jail. Oh. And then he said, okay, I marry her on paper. We don't live together, but from time to time, I have to do these horrible things to my own family. Um, my mother couldn't accept that, which I can understand from the point of view of being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically she said, you know, this is such a big betrayal. Why didn't you try to escape in what way ever or you know I mean you should have stuck to us no matter what because little Pauline is there and you know you're her father and so long story short I uh, mainly grew up without him I reached out to him proactively uh, in my 20s because um, it was always weird for me I have a lot of things um in my character, a lot of things um, visually uh, that don't fit to the family members I know. Mm-hmm. Like I'm super blonde or blondish and my mother has super dark brown hair, you know, like the rest of my family in, in, um, in West Germany, so to say. So there was a visual gap between them and me and also there was some kind of um, character traits maybe mm-hmm. that I couldn't connect so much with them. Right. Not in a negative way, but in a way of, okay, this is weird. This is, um, these are interests that I have that I cannot explain. These are, um, I don't know, maybe a way of looking at life that was a little bit different. Um, and from time to time, my mother was saying to me, yeah, you're you're a little bit like your father, you know, you, you don't want to follow rules so much, <laughs> you know? And yeah, that, that was something that I was interested in. And mm-hmm. so I met him. It was weird because I was a grown-up, yeah. you know, and he was a grown-up and we were uh, sitting in a cafe in uh, Dresden. 
And we talked a lot about these things. And what we mainly talked about, and I was not originally so interested in that, but I could feel how it was still hunting him, mm-hmm. which was the time when he was alone before the system uh, fell down. And um, what I realized is that he was not able to disconnect emotionally from this time. Mm -hmm. It was still so present in his everyday life, you know. Um, He was mainly talking about that when I was interested in him and his, I don't know, his daily life right now, you know, and what he's doing for a living and, you know, like just... To know him. Yeah, just small talk, Mm -hmm. but small talk that is important when you have this connection when your father and daughter and for him the past was still extremely present that is my biggest impression of him he showed me his uh, stasi files and at some point um, there were 17 people watching him and it was very close friends You know, it was uh, a guy that he was playing football with that he knew for 20 years. Stuff like that. But it's possible his friend didn't have a choice. You always have a choice. Absolutely. But from what you've shared with us, the pressures are so high. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I have the huge benefit of um, watching these things from a distance. And this is what I also told him. I told him exactly what you just said. You were also under pressure. The system was being a paranoid system where basically everybody was reporting everyone Mm -hmm. to whoever, you know. There were almost no private citizens anymore. At some point, um, I don't know the numbers, but there were so many people who were reporting on the Stasi. I mean, there were not so many important people Within the DDR, it was getting absurd at some point. The, the system was was running crazy with, uh, with spying on each other. I told him exactly what you said. I'm pretty sure he didn't have a choice. Yeah. Did he maybe have a family? Did they maybe make pressure on him? Because look at your own story and what happened to you, what happened to us, and how quickly they can turn something that is not even as major as what you did, which was organizing escapes (laughs) against you. You know, they could take uh, something like, as I said earlier in the beginning, a bottle of wine against you. And they knew how to create this psychological pressure of, you know, making you do things you didn't want. He understood that. And he um, he agreed, but I think the trauma is mm-hmm. still very present in him. Yes. I would say like maybe once a year, once every two years we'll meet. Wow. We were not able to establish a father-daughter relationship, mm-hmm. which um, surprisingly is okay for me. Because what I always said is that I had a father, which was my grandfather. Grandfather, yeah, exactly. Like I, I maybe in a very weird way had two moms and one dad yeah. already yeah. doing everything for me. And I was never lacking cuteness and emotional support and coziness, 
you know, I was, I had that. Luckily, but at the same time, sadly, that place was a little bit filled by my grandfather. So it was not too bad for me. Mm-hmm. It was just something that, that I was thinking about a lot and that I'm still thinking yeah. about a lot. When I was sitting in front of him, I didn't feel him so much like a father, but more like somebody that is more or less my age. Mm. And I found myself in the position of thinking, oh man, this is so sad. You you need to maybe seek some help or you maybe... Well, what you mainly need is closure. Closure, yeah. Because um, these things, they were plus 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you're still and forever reliving them, you're not living the, the nice life that you could have right now, basically. Yeah. Because we are the very fortunate ones in Central Europe and in in a beautiful city like Dresden, even visually beautiful, yeah, that is what I what I thought maybe. Why do you think sharing stories like these and sharing similar stories maybe in the Berlin Film Festival, the Human Rights Film Festival, and um, through Save the Children, why do you think sharing these stories are so important? Because it makes you understand history. Mm-hmm. And it makes you understand the human component of things happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the to the Human Rights Film Festival, yeah. it's it's a documentary festival. So it is mainly what I did right now, which is picking little pieces of history, little mm-hmm. pieces of major events, personalizing them, and by that telling the story. And I think this is what makes us understand history a little bit better because we are all able to read a history book. We are all able to 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 learn the dates by heart. But when you read a story just to go one time back into the DDR, if you read the story of the DDR, it leaves you a little bit with confusion. It leaves you with the confusion of why did people stay there? before the border closed? Mm-hmm. Um, why did people want to follow a system like this? Because they were not making any any secret of it being kind of socialist or trying to be a socialist state. It leaves you with the question when you only read about it of why were people participating in the, in, in, in the Stasi apparatus, mm-hmm. you know? But when you when you hear little stories and little pieces personalized of people reporting because they were afraid for their kids, they were afraid for their resources, it makes you understand how people can participate in things that from the outside are very, I would say, evil, you know, and very, very antisocial to each other. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing with um, with the festival, basically. We are having uh, movies from all around the world. When it comes to the program that we are showing for Save the Children, um, of course, we are focusing on the stories of children. And the beautiful thing about documentaries is that they are the main protagonists of these stories. And in many cases of our movies, they are even 
part of producing the pictures that we are showing. One movie that stuck with me the most is Shadow Games. It's about a young group of um, boys. We are talking underaged, some of them being nine years old, some of them being 12 years old, um, being on the run for years. Um, the majority of them comes from Afghanistan and uh, they were sent away so they don't have to um, participate in Taliban structures. So at some point, the families realized, okay, we are having a male child. This can get very problematic. Um, they should say, seek safety wherever, you know, but not in Afghanistan. And um, so these boys, they were followed um, by this documentary film team. And... Um, The movie also shows sceneries of their own uh, handy cameras, you know, and um, it's a movie that um, hurts you a little bit by watching it. I mean, basically all of our movies do because, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard topics. But this one stuck with me a lot because you see children playing with a handy camera somewhere on the Balkan hood, uh, sending a WhatsApp text message to his aunt in, in Afghanistan and just doing something funny with a stick or, you know, playing, basically. Mm. It's absurd. You know, it's absurd because they should be in school. Yeah. They should be with a grown-up yeah. <laughs> taking care of them that makes sure that they, I don't know, go to football training or, yeah. or meet a friend or whatever. And so this movie shows a lot of these scenes of them also sleeping alone. This group of boys, um, that is the main the main part of this movie, they met on the run and uh, they, they started sticking together to be more safe. And they make uh, jokes about themselves, you know. One of them wears glasses and, of course, the glasses break during, during uh, this long travel or escape, and then they had to find a way to fix the glasses and they were filming it and making fun of it and it was a thing for several days calling him, um, I think, the broken glass guys <laughs> or some something like this, you know, because they are children. Yeah. And um, yeah, so this stuck with me a lot. And I think when you read the German news especially, you know, I mean, I think you have followed the news of... Um, the so-called refugee crisis in 2015 yeah. in Europe. Yeah. And um, people were painting these, in many cases also children, as intruders and as um, a danger, you know, because in many cases uh, the gender was reported. But I think we are making um, a feminist mistake here because um, the reason we got so many young males, also young underaged males, is because women on the run, and I have to say this very bluntly, they rarely survive. So, um, of course, families send the boys, not the girls. It's absolutely... I don't think I know cases of a group of girls 
walking the Balkan route. And I mean, patriarchal structures, they work in both ways, you know, they, they hurt the boys in the way of being the first target of the Taliban, but they also in some way, in a very weird way, they benefit them because they have the higher chance of arriving. So, um, yeah, and I think these stories need to be told to make them human. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. To um, round out our conversation, who would you say inspires you? Oh, that is a very hard question because it changes. Yeah. It changes, I would say. Um, I have a lot of females that I look up to and that I find very inspiring in the way of um, what kind of change they made in society. Mm -hmm. Um, As a young woman, I think like many people who work in human rights or women rights, I was a huge admirer of uh, Simone de Beauvoir and uh, her boldness of, um, yeah, just studying in a time where it was not usual for for a woman to study and determining her own life, living a lesbian relationship, or I would say even a bisexual relationship because she was also dating Sartre. So that was also very, I mean, that was very inspiring for me because it was so, she was never apologizing. You know, it was just her being her and the rest is, it doesn't matter. In in a time where it was almost unbelievable Mm -hmm. to do something like this. But there are so many others, like when we are talking about uh, people presently still being alive, I would say Eva Elus, who is uh, an Israeli um, sociologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, She's writing about um, basically modern life uh, and modern relationships um, from her research point of view and how it is possible or impossible for heterosexual relationships um, to work out in in a society where we're not completely having free choice mm-hmm. of who we are taking as a partner, as w- as women, for example. That would wow. be a complete, like, that would be a podcast on its own, basically. Wow. Yeah. But I can highly recommend the books to, to your listeners. I think they are also available in English. Wow. She's a very publicly known intellectual. Sometimes she comes for, for readings to Berlin. I met her once. It was a strong fangirl moment because <laughs> I was absolutely blown away. And when we are talking about, so I would say that is a research part that I admire. Simone de Beauvoir is a woman that shaped me while me shaping myself. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to um, empowerment and when it comes to how I want to act in society and how I want to treat myself and other people, I would say it's Brené uh, Brown. You know her? Yes. Everybody yes. knows her. Very, yeah. yeah. Very famous back in Canada. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we love her. Yeah, I mean, she's amazing. Amazing. 
I have all of her books and um, I listen to her, her podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, what she taught me about vulnerability and it being a strength, not a weakness, mm -hmm. I think it's the most beautiful thing that somebody ever has teached me. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It is beautiful. Yeah, because in a way, if you look at my upbringing, I was taught the opposite. Mm -hmm. Being strong, having to face obstacles, but, you know, going through it. Yeah. And, and of course, having a nice outcome, but I think the vulnerability part in my family, it came a little bit too short right. for obvious reasons. And... Um, Yeah, it, it resonated with me so deeply that we need vulnerability for connection, that we need vulnerability, um, also the vulnerability that I'm sharing right now, you know, yeah. and sharing my story. Yeah. And it is, um, it has shaped me deeply and I hope she will publish more. I'm very much looking forward to it, Brene. If you can hear me, please call me. I love you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was not, you know, the conversation I, 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 you know, you never know what conversation you're going to have, Yeah. you know, when you meet someone and, you know, meeting you for the first time. Yeah. So good to meet you. So lovely to meet you. Same. It's, it's, you don't know where, where the conversation's going to go. And I'm so thankful for where this conversation went Yeah. and for the story that you shared. It was so beautiful. Heartbreaking. Yeah educational. Yeah. Thank you. I have to thank you because, you know, maybe it's so not so publicly known in Canada and it's yeah. I I think it it's beautiful that yeah, that we can can share stories from different countries, from different eras and get a deeper deeper understanding for each other, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this incredible and intimate conversation with Pauline Schmidt. It's inspired me to share more openly and learn more about my past and our shared past. Follow Pauline on Instagram and learn more about the work she's passionate about at savethechildren.de. Join us next time for a conversation with the award-winning Syrian children's book illustrator and writer Nadine Kadan. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit subscribe share with your friends and visit us at millie.ca.